Well, thanks for being here tonight. I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, my name's Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. Just got back uh, from an epic fishing trip up in Alaska. Got back early Monday morning, uh, one in the morning, and just had an absolute blast. You know, it doesn't get much better than slaying salmon on the Kenai River. I even have pictures so you can, uh, you know, live vicariously through me. Slaying salmon left and right. It, It was a blast. It was eat, sleep, fish, repeat. That's all it was. Eat, sleep, fish, Repeat, But you know what? One of the best parts about it all was there was a, another group of solid Christian men who, who go to a different church in Camarillo and just spending time with them, hearing their stories, getting to know them. You know, we'd sit around the, the campfire and I'd hear stories about, about one man who uh, was shot down in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. Another man who uh, his kids and grandkids are missionaries in Uganda. Uh, another gentleman who taught like every different grade in elementary school and was a, a principal. These were stories that would outlast any number of cords of wood. It was just amazing. But the fishing was unreal. It was off the hook, no pun intended. It was different than any sort of fishing I've ever done before. We're here salmon fishing on the Kenai River. And so you take your your rod and you've just got a hook on it, no bait or anything. And you cast it out, maybe just an ounce of weight or so. You cast it, I don't know, upriver, I guess. And then it drifts down. You only cast about 10 feet 15 feet out, it drifts down, and then when your line is straight, you just zip it up. You do that about 10,000 times, and then, you know, a couple of those, you'll catch a fish, and then you yell out, fish on, and the salmon is fighting. You're trying to pull it back, and then you step forward and reel, and then step back, and then sometimes the weight comes off and shoots back like a bullet, but uh, that never happened to me except on my leg, which, you know, really need that much to fish. But uh, then as soon as you bring the fish close to the dock, someone, uh, uh, hopefully a friend of yours, has a net ready and they scoop up that big old salmon. You take it over to the grass or a gravel area. And this is the best part. You grab a club. And this thing is, you know, I I could show you a video, but I decided it's probably not appropriate. Uh, the, The fish is flopping all over. And you just take that club like a little baseball bat and just... Just tap it on the head. Five, six, seven, eight times, depending on how you're feeling that particular day. And then you you pick it up, slit its throat, bleed it out, wash it off, throw it in the filet bucket, and there you go. Amazing experience. We slayed salmon. 325 pounds we brought back. Uh, There were five in our little group. Three of us were doing the fishing because two others had some injuries. But the guys were asking me on our three-hour drive out of the forest back to, like, civilization, they they asked me, like, so do you have, like, new sermon material now? And I'm like, yeah, I've got plenty, (laughs) plenty. Actually, our our passage tonight in uh, Habakkuk is a fish story of sorts. Not that it's blown out of proportion like normal fish stories, 
but that it shows the Israelite people with this fishy feeling that they're fish helplessly swimming and then they're pulled out only to be caught and killed. Well, last week, Jeffrey O'Dell, Bonesaw Barnett, the guy who is leading us in worship tonight, just a phenomenal individual, he opened up Habakkuk, and uh, he called it Habakkuk. You can also call it uh, Habakkuk. He called it Habakkuk, I'm sorry. You know, it's going to come out both ways, so don't worry. Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm talking about the same thing. But the message he gave last week was incredible. I I would go check it out if I were you. I'll be dropping a couple hints from that, uh, that sermon last Wednesday. Uh, we'll call them Habakkuk's prophetic words. He opened it up with uh, a complaint with overflowing misery and violence. That's what's happening in Judah at the time. How the law has become paralyzed. How justice is nowhere to be found. And God replies to Habakkuk that I'm going to raise up an unbelievable force, the Babylonian Empire, to sweep across the lands like cheetahs, to swoop down and devour their prey like eagles, all bent on violence to destroy and conquer. And tonight we hear about the why of it, the why. But before we get into the words of Habakkuk, here's a quick timeline that will help us to understand where we are at. We should first understand that Israel is a tiny guppy in a really, really big pond. A pond with unbelievably big and unspeakably vicious predators. So we begin with the kingship, the Israelite monarchy and King Saul, about the years 1,000, maybe 1,100 And then King Saul, after his suicide on the battlefield, makes way for David. After King David, and you know his story, all his exploits with Goliath and and Bathsheba and Uriah, he, of course, has many military victories. He makes way for his son, the wise Solomon. But King Solomon, even with all of his wisdom and all of his wives, couldn't help but break the united monarchy into a divided monarchy. After his death, there was civil war, and the united monarchy becomes the divided monarchy. Israel in the north and the southern kingdom in the south called Judah. But in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was obliterated by a new power on the rise, wiped off by the unbelievably big and unspeakably vicious predator, the Assyrian Empire. But in 612 BC, the Assyrian Empire gave way to an even greater power, the Babylonian Empire. And yet, as we see all of these changing tides of monarchies and empires, we who believe in the one true God, we know there's so much more going on behind the scenes. And I think that the words of the prophet Daniel say it best, that God is the one who changes times and eras, who dethrones one king only to establish another. 
If you're able to stand, I want to invite us to stand tonight as we read from Habakkuk chapter 1. The first two verses, verse 12 and 13. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? God, we come before you tonight believing that you are the one true God. You are the one who changes times and eras. You set up kings and dispose of kings. And Lord, in all the change and uncertainty we face in life, you remain constant. And we thank you for that that no fear can stand a chance because you are present. And in the light of your love, our lives are illuminated and we find our hope and firm footing. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we'll begin with uh, chapter 1, verse 12a, the first part of it. It begins, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, that is the set-apart One, the One pure and other than. God, in His holiness, in this particular context, refers to His all-powerful transcendent, above and beyond nature, as a righteous judge of the world. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal. That means past, present, and future, outside of space and time, and yet interacting with space and time, involved in space and time. Surely you do not plan to wipe us out. Uh, Actually, uh, yeah. Actually, yeah, that's That's the plan. Not entirely, but yeah. Here, Habakkuk begins to question God's plan to send Babylon to judge Judah, the southern kingdom. First, Habakkuk here appeals to God's sense of justice. Verse 12b, O Lord, our rock. Whenever you hear that, you see that as a common metaphor in Scripture. It's appealing to God's protection. It views God as a place where you can go to be safe from danger. Oh, Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. So Habakkuk is here putting the pieces Together, God, you've given rise to this new world empire, the Babylonian empire that was described earlier in chapter 1 as the following. A cruel and violent people marching across the world, conquering lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. The charioteers charge from far away. Like eagles, they swoop down to devour their prey. On they come, all bent on violence. Yeah, that's not good news. 
The God who has been a rock of security and safety for his people throughout their history has given rise to this new enemy, this new world empire, this Babylonian war machine to correct his people and punish their many sins. What sins are we talking about? The sin of God's people of Judah actively engaging in Violence, evil deeds, destruction, hostility, injustice, inhospitality, immorality, neglect of the poor and needy, rebellion, wickedness, self-centeredness, pride, impurity, lust, greed, gluttony, idolatry, sloth, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, bullying, selfish ambition, dissension, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and wrath, to name a few. The God who has been a rock of security and safety for his people throughout their history has given rise to this new enemy, this new world empire, this Babylonian war machine to correct his people and punish their many sins. But as Habakkuk puts the pieces together and questions this, a whole host of other questions arise. How can God, being perfectly good and perfectly loving and altogether defined by justice according to his nature, how can God do this? It's the fundamental question of the book of Habakkuk. And it's our first question for Table Talk tonight. So go ahead and talk about this question to the people around you. If God is good and loving and just, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people and good things to happen to bad people? Go for it. I think the first thing that we have to admit as we are trying to take a stab at this question, you guys had like three and a half minutes to do that, so hopefully you answered it and just uh, can walk away with a great answer. But first of all, I think we must first admit that our idea of perfect goodness and love and justice might be a bit skewed by our human perspective, which because of our sin and selfishness, is kind of like looking through faulty, scratched up, or maybe even just wrong prescription glasses. But even with our own pair, or even with his own pair of perhaps faulty, scratched up, or wrong prescription glasses, Habakkuk sees what seems to be an inconsistency. God is rising up Babylon for the purpose of Judah's correction and punishment. And it just seems wrong because it's Babylon you're using and the Babylonians are even worse than the unrighteous in Judah. But before we go any further, I think an important distinction needs to be made here. If God is perfectly good and loving and just, he cannot do evil. I believe what is happening here is similar to what happened in the event of Pharaoh's hardened heart in the book of Exodus, that as God utilized Pharaoh's own natural proclivity toward evil, and this process furthered God's own purposes, I believe a similar phenomenon is happening here in Habakkuk. 
that as God handed Pharaoh over to Pharaoh's own desires, God is handing the Babylonians over to their own desires, which in turn actually happens to serve God's purposes and correct the sin of Judah. But the strange and amazing part is how God uses such monstrous appetites for evil to actually carry out his own good purposes. I think it just goes back to the reality that maybe God didn't create the pile of whatever you want to call it, uh, however you say that word, but God's going to cause a flower or something beautiful to grow out of that because that's who God is. That's how God operates. He takes broken things and makes them whole and new again. But on the outset, it seems just backwards. And so Habakkuk questions and appeals to God's sense of justice. Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. Oh, Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. Verse 13 says, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. You can't tolerate it or put up with evil because you're God. Will you wink at their treachery? God, if you are perfectly good and perfectly loving and perfectly just in all your goodness and love and purity, how could this happen? How could this be your plan? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they. It seems rather inconsistent, God, as if Habakkuk is, is saying, sure, yeah, God, we as Judah are sinful. And yeah, we deserve correction and we deserve punishment. But the correction and punishment you're doling out is being doled out by the Babylonians who are even more sinful than us. And the Babylonians deserve that correction and punishment even more than we do. It reminds me of all those moments as a kid where I somehow hooked myself into a, a trouble of my own making. And as my mom comes to me, I tried to weasel my way out of that guilt, out of my sin, out of my wrongdoing, wipe the, the blood off my hands, so to speak. My mom would repeat and repeat and repeat the same phrase. I'm not talking about your sister right now. I'm talking about you. I don't care what your sister is doing. I'm talking about you. You know, when we think about Judah, you guys have the law. You guys have the prophets. You are the chosen people of God. You should be held to a standard that I'm not going to hold them accountable to at this point, at least. We can try to weasel out of our own sin and wrongdoing and, and wipe the blood off our hands <laughs> by blame, by deflection, or by comparing our own sin to the sin of others. But even if we manage to do so, our hands are still bloody. Up in Alaska, there was an establishment on the side of the road 
It was called uh, a Good Time Charlie's. And we would pass by this place when we were heading to town. It was a, a gentleman's club. That's a, a nice way of putting it. Big old sign, showgirls on it. And it became a joke every time we would pass by it going into town or heading, heading back from town is that, hey, we should send a picture to the wives back home. Say so like, oh man, there's no place to eat here except good time Charlie's. And, and it also became, you know, a, a joke that, I don't know. I thought it was funny, but, you know, or, or we say, well, we're having a good time at Charlie's. But uh, every time we would pass by this place, I would think about the patrons visiting this gentleman's club, and it felt like I, I couldn't help myself but to puff myself up and swell with pride, thinking that, you know what? My sin's not as bad as theirs. You don't see me hanging out at Good Time Charlie's. Let's talk about that. Why do we compare our own sin with the sin of others? Where does this motivation come from? Ready, go. Here Habakkuk questions and appeals to God's sense of justice and that's okay because God can handle it. God can handle our questions. And bringing our questions to God allows us to sort out our insights and understandings and our motivations for understanding these questions. Why are we even asking them in the first place? But now here in the next few verses, Habakkuk appeals to God as creator, perfectly good and loving and just. Verse 14 says, are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Are we merely salmon swimming up river just to be hooked and net and clubbed and slit? And put in a bucket and then cut up and processed and brought back to California. Are we only fish to be caught? Because God, weren't we created in your image and likeness? God, weren't we given purpose and responsibility? Didn't you say of us at the moment of creation that we were tov me old, that we were very good? Yes, yes, and yes. Of course we aren't just fish to be caught and killed. Of course we aren't just sea creatures that have no leader. But for Habakkuk, it sure feels like it. It sure feels like it if you've ever been oppressed or bullied or beat down. You wonder, where are you, God? Where are you in all this hurt and headache? Is there some purpose to this pain? Where is your perfect goodness? Where is your perfect love and intervening justice? Habakkuk draws this analogy between humans and the fish of the sea here. In the next few verses, he uses the analogy to demonstrate how Although God created humanity, the Babylonians think they have control over humanity. They're like fishermen who do whatever they want with the fish. Verses 15 and 16. Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their nets and burn incense in front of them. 
These nets are gods who have made us rich, they will claim. It's probably how the fish of the Kenai River felt when we were slaying salmon like crazy. I know it's how we as fishermen felt, not that we were bowing down and worshiping these nets and rods and reels and burning incense in front of them, but we rejoiced. We celebrated. You know, we brought home uh, about four thousand, or no, I mean, sorry, four, yeah, four thousand dollars worth of Alaskan wild-caught sockeye salmon. But you know what? We still have to pick out the bones, and it's not like we're going to go sell it. Not that anyone would buy it, you know, nor would we want to. And yet, how easy it is for an action to turn into a hobby, to turn into a fascination, to turn into an obsession to a god. Babylon was like a fisherman who took other nations captive with hook and net and rejoiced over his large catch. There's various monuments that you can see on the screen that depict the Babylonians as having driven a hook through the lower lip of their captives and stringing them along in a single file like a catch of fish on a stringer. In other Babylonian images from the ancient Near East, the Babylonian gods are illustrated as dragging uh, their nets, which their captured enemies squirm inside of. They gave worship to the tools of their conquests. They paid homage to the idols of their hands. So God, Habakkuk wonders, how could this be your plan? You intend to correct and punish Judah for her terrible sin. And that's understandable. We, we get that. The people, they act in violent ways, and they completely neglect your instruction, but the instrument that you intend to use to carry out this correction is all the more terrible. They're even more sinful. They're even more deserving of correction and punishment. They're the Babylonians. Verse 17 says, Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquests. After appealing to God's sense of justice and role as creator, Habakkuk asks if the Babylonians will continue in their destructive path unbridled, their evil ways left unchecked. Will we be wiped out? Will he just stand and watch, God? Are we helpless? Will this last forever? They're the questions that hurting people ask when the hurt hurts. They're the questions that you might be asking tonight. Will I be wiped out? Will you just stand and watch, God? Am I helpless? Will this last forever? God's plan not to interfere with the Babylonian wickedness, it baffled Habakkuk. He couldn't understand how God could use a nation that practiced such excessive violence to judge the sins of Judah, God's chosen people. And so what does Habakkuk decide to do? Chapter 2, verse 1. I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. He compares himself to a watchman on a wall, on the city, who, who keeps his eyes open for approaching messengers or danger. There I will wait to see what the Lord says. 
and how he will answer my complaint. He waits expectantly and patiently for God to reply. He doesn't turn. He doesn't leave. He doesn't run away. He doesn't leave his faith behind. He waits. So will the Babylonians get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquest? Come back next week to to find out. But I want to leave you with some hope tonight. Reason for hope. I see in his confusion and misunderstanding and his complete just bafflement, Habakkuk does something amazing. He chooses to do the hard thing. He could flee. He could ignore the issue, turn his back on God in his anxiety and frustration, but he brings his question to God and he waits. In our world today, it's so instant gratification that if I don't hear back from that person within 30 seconds or an hour or two hours, we can't, can't handle that, right? Waiting in line, no. Waiting on God, it, it feels unnatural. But he brings his question to God and he waits. He waits for God to answer He does what Jeffrey O'Dell Bonesaw Barnett encouraged us to do last week with the acronym PUSH, pray until something happens. And then pray some more when it does. Habakkuk does something profound here. He, He does the hard thing. He maintains a belief in God's just rule in spite of an unjust world. He maintains a belief in God's role as creator in spite of a mounting hardships. He maintains a belief in God's ability in spite of uncertainty and frustration and impending doom. So may the Lord be your God, your Holy One, the one who is eternal. May the Lord be your rock, the place where you can go to be safe from danger. May you come to see that in spite of an unjust world or mounting hardships or uncertainty, frustration, and impending doom, God is still perfectly good, perfectly loving, and altogether justice through and through. Would you pray with me? God, we praise your name forever. For you have all wisdom and all power. Lord, you control the the course of world events. You remove kings and set up other kings. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. You reveal deep and mysterious things. And you know what lies hidden in darkness, though you are surrounded by light. That thank and praise you, God, for you give us wisdom and strength. Strength when we're lacking, when we don't know how to wait, when we don't know how to pray. Lord, empower us to be people who do the hard thing, that we would maintain belief and faith and trust in you in spite of a world that may be unjust. 
in spite of mounting hardships or uncertainty and frustration or impending doom. For you are our God and you are a God of hope. And so we are never left dismayed. We love you and praise you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. Holy Spirit, go before us and help us to love this world one person at a time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.